Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 77 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the podcast in which I, your humble host and guide, take you, the listener, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. That is the most highest, purest, wonderful, emotional, spiritual, physical, sexual form of being that mankind can possibly get close to and achieve. And how is it achievable, you ask? Well, that is very simple. By watching every bloody movie, the man I call the Golden Hog of Hollywood, Nicolas Cage himself, has ever been in. How are you this week? We roll even closer to that bloody holiday event that they call Christmas. Um, so much wrapping to do, and I'm not into. I'm not looking forward to any part of it. Um, the major update for myself is it took nearly two years, but your boy so close to the end of 2021, went and caught that COVID. Um, Omicron right up the chuff. Um, The positive lateral flow earlier this week, positive PCR came to follow. Fortunately, my self-isolation ends on Christmas Eve. So pending no restrictions being brought into play again, Christmas may still be on for you, boy, but we will find out. So if I sound a little bit fluey, in this uh, intro, that is why, fortunately, symptoms are nice and mild, so just a bit of a cold, more or less, so it could be a lot worse, counting the old blessings. Um, now, with that said as well, this episode, episode 77, which we're talking about Dog Eat Dog, with film critic James Rodriguez, will mark the final episode of the podcast for 2021, before we return in the new year, 2022, so I do hope you enjoy it before we go on a little breaky-boo here. Um, but what a time to go on a break as well, because we finally got a trailer for the unbearable weight of massive talent. Nicholas Cage and Pedro Pascal coming April 22nd, 2022. Trailer looks great, cannot wait. I must survive until April. But before we get into the episode, let's get the admin out of the way as well. You can find the show on all the usual podcast streaming services, wherever you get your podcasts. If you were listening on such a platform in which you can leave a rating, uh, which now includes Spotify, you can leave a star rating, uh, but also Podchaser and Apple Podcasts as well. Please do help more people find the show, gets more people on board the journey to True Cage Nirvana, and helps out your boy, and is always appreciated. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, at Cage underscore podcast, and Instagram, at Cage Rage Pod. But with that all out of the way, um, I suppose it's left to leave you uh, with a wish of seasonal tidings and good cheer, a Merry Christmas to all, and Happy New Year as well, or whatever and however you celebrate, I hope you're having a good time all the same, uh, we'll catch you when we catch you in the new year, but until then, keep on keep on caging, it's all you have to do, and here's episode 77, Dog Eat Dog, Dan Edge, James Rodriguez, ta so we're back in that there 2016 this week for the black comedy action thriller Doggy Dog. Eat Dog. 
Now this week, Cage stars as Troy, one of three ex-cons, hired by a mob boss to kidnap the baby of a rival mobster. Now joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if Dog Eat Dog is a good boy or just one sad puppy is film critic James Rodriguez. James, how are you doing today? Hey Daryl, I'm doing well thanks. I'm speaking about Cage so I'm living the dream here. How are you? <laughs> well I'm glad that you're living the dream uh, and I could be a small part in a, in this dream for you. Uh, not bad. Um, I think as I we've been discussing in sort of the Twitter DM, DMs even. Uh, had better health weeks, but this is uh, through the guiding light of the man I call the Golden Hog. Slightly, uh, slightly healthier on the other side this week. So um, well enough to discuss dog eat dog. Um, or if I pass out, just carry on without me. That's the spirit of the podcast. Um, <laughs> and, and it will be spiritually gifted to yourself. Um, so at the start of any episode, especially with any new guests such as yourself gracing um, the hallowed halls of Cage this week, I'm always eager to know for yourself, James, um, are you a fan of Cage or is someone you, you're a bit 50-50 on or someone that you think is just an absolute cheese ball or write-off? Um, where do you stand on the man we call the golden hog of Hollywood? Well, for the longest time, I fell into that mindset of seeing Cage as a, a meme first and an actor second and I admittedly was a bit dismissive over him but the more I del delved into his work uh, especially with stuff like Mandy and older stuff like Raising Arizona as well I got to see more sides to him and I think he's just one of the most fascinating out actors working out there and regardless of the film's quality, you're going to get something interesting out of him. And it's a really sad day when his performance is anything less than that. I mean, I'm trying more and more Cage films. My first ever film I watched this year was Left Behind. So every time I'm letterboxed, I'm reminded <laughs> that I watched that crap. But What a bar. I guess. Hey, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana, it is a uh, commitment comes in all shapes and sizes. And to start your 2021, um, a turbulent year for many, many reasons, but to start it with mm -hmm. the left behind um, shows an intelligence and temerity not often found in the film community. Um, but God bless you. Um, now, d dare I ask for, for fear of getting off the podcast onto such shall we say, turbulent notes. Um, left Behind for you, um, is that one you think, you're? Tr have you been trying to scrub that from your brain ever since, or would you ever, ever take that flight again? I, I like watching crap films. I do enjoy just sitting down with my brothers or just myself and seeing something which um, is considered quite bad. Because if I don't like it, then I have a nice story to say, like, hey, I survived this. Uh, but I always hope for the that I might come out the other end and be like, no, guys, this is actually quite an underrated one. Didn't really happen with Left Behind, but <laughs> I don't regret watching it. I, it's very, I don't think I regret watching any films, in all honesty. Maybe Mrs. Brown Boy's movie, but that's another story. Um, but no, I wouldn't watch it again. But 
I don't regret watching it. I mean, it's one of the worst Cage films I've seen, but I is it the worst? I can't say off the top of my head, in all honesty. Maybe. There's a, an argument to be made if it's up there in, in the worst of the worst. Um, maybe that's for another podcast. Um, mm. uh, <laughs> who knows? But for the, the completionists out here, the cage completionists, um, who I've said from the beginning and I'll continue to say until the end are doing the Lord's work. We're, uh, we're watching these movies so that you don't have to. Um, it, was, it was a few months ago, actually. I was just browsing... Um, I think it was a British Heart Foundation charity store just up the road from me, and there just there was just randomly a copy of Left Behind on Blu-ray in there for about a pound, and part of me was just thinking, do I take this so that no one else has to? I felt <laughs> there was kind of like a compulsion upon me to do it. Um, ultimately, I did kind of chicken out, and I was like, yeah, but then I, but then if no one else owns it, that means that I own it, so yeah. I don't know who was getting the rawer. <laughs> The roarer of the deals, um, there. Even if you did own one copy, it's still one out of however many out there. It's like taking one raindrop, so somebody else doesn't have to have it. It's taking a raindrop amidst a shitstorm. Is is what it is. You still, so <laughs> some people, some people um, still getting covered. You know, wisdom comes on the journey to true cage nirvana when you're this far in. And then sort of near in the end in many respects as well. Um, you know, it changes you. Uh that's <laughs> you don't you don't you're not the same person after you've watched over 70, 80 cage films at this point. Um but for you as well, you've mentioned that you know you you're trying to get watch more cage films yourself. Mm. Um and as you also said, you know, you you're sort of flipping the uh the, the needle of opinion almost on cage. Uh, now, left behind aside, you'd mentioned some films there like Raised in Arizona, which I think is an apt comparison for the film we're going to talk about today as mm-hmm. well. But um, maybe especially with Raised in Arizona in mind, were there any sort of cage films in particular that really sort of flipped that needle for you? Mandy was a big one because I just came out the other end adoring what I saw. And um, I think it's a case of the more good films I watch from his back catalogue, the more interesting performances I see, the more I lean towards further loving the guy. And it's like one of my favourite films of this year was Pig. And yeah, I sure. think that's just, even with Mandy is probably my favourite performance of his in quite some time, but Pig is really up there. And I think it's a quieter portrayal than audiences would probably be um, accustomed to for him but it really showcases his versatility and I really do wish a lot more people would see it so they realise there's more to him than just screaming not the bees <laughs> a lot of people um, too hopped up on that honey to really mm-hmm. see, the, uh, see the nectar for the uh, the nectar for the hive you know um, no, Pig, Pig was what a terrific film um, Pig was got to see it at a cinema in Sheffield because it was quite a limited release, but mm. um, glad that the pilgrimage was made, especially for this one. And at the point of recording now, um, sort of nearing towards the end of November, and I think we're at this point of the year where there is that conversation about 
you know, who are going to be the awards contenders going into the next awards season. Um, do you think that Pig is going to be with him in, with a shout in the awards contention? I hope it does. I really hope it does, personally. I really hope it does as well. He, I'd say Cage, at the very least, deserves a nominations abound in this awards season. Um, but I think it's going to get shadowed with the bigger name films from the larger studios. I think everyone's going to have their minds on Will Smith, potentially Denzel Washington, probably Andrew Garfield. But I think it's just a sad case of they're too focused on the bigger names and Cage unfortunately gets left behind. A full circle, this guy, ladies and gentlemen. That's (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. I can Um, bullshit very well. And that's why I ask people on my podcast to fill in the blanks with puns and circle narrative like that when I just stutter and choke on my own voice. Um, But (laughs) I I certainly hope it it does get at least a a whiff of contention. Um, Because I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'm I'm still not over the snubbery of uh, Joe from almost 10 years ago now so i'm hoping that pig will not be the joe of the 2020s and that we'll just be left wondering um what if yet again a raw dog for the golden hog um another in my lifetime god damn it um now i suppose speaking of dogs um on a, on a most tenuous of links because that's what i bring to the podcast <laughs> game shit and piss um, dog eat dog. Uh, 2016's dog eat dog. No, I've kind of noted that 2016 um, was a very sort of all over the place year for Cage. A lot of straight to DVD efforts. Snowden sort of snuck in there as well. Um, but this was the first viewing of dog eat dog for me. Um, I remember all I saw of it. I remember. I think it might have been Enemy or something. There was a so like a, a trailer. Oh. Willem Dafoe and Nicolas Cage and almost promoting this a, a turbulence and testosterone and clashing madness, then you're like, oh, this is going to be pretty pretty wild. Um, and then it just didn't seem to release anywhere. I think it was very, very li- limited, if it's all around here. Uh, was this a film you saw at the time or one that you've seen prior to recording today? No. Um, as soon as we... Um agrees to as soon as i agreed to come on to this um discuss this i just bought a dvd cheaply off amazon and then that was my first viewing and no i it i heard some responses from friends at the time but otherwise this was one which seemed to arrive with little fanfare yeah um like i said i saw maybe a blip of it and then it disappeared off the radar and um, became really what is typical for the period of Cage at this time, the, the 2010s, mid-2010s especially, um, the height of straight-to-DVD um, madness, if you will. Dog Eat Dog, and obviously we'll get more into this as, as the uh, the episode progresses. Mm-hmm. I think on, um, I guess, a broad first, very brief how it was for me, I'm kind of not sure. I'm still... This is kind of one of those films, I think, like, on the first screening, I was kind of like, uh, yeah, there were some bits I liked, some bits I didn't. I think there was a lot of style over substance for me. It seemed to be atypical of some things Paul Schrader was doing, especially at the time. 
but a lot of people seem to really love it as well. A lot of mixed opinion on this. Some people didn't really dig it. A lot of people really, really into it. And I suppose, I guess, briefly for yourself, um, how were you sort of feeling as the credits started rolling on this? Relief, in all honesty. <laughs> um, it's got, well, Nicolas Cage opposite Willem Dafoe playing a coked up wild card. This should be extremely my shit. And especially with such star in place but i just did not get on with it mm. and it's a darn shame yeah yeah i can't help this i can't help but like agree almost entirely with that and obviously again we'll break down into our uh, mm. more opinions and break down the film a bit more but um and willing the foe is a guy i really enjoy as well i think he's also um like cage in some ways, the kind of two sides of the same coin. In some ways, they've had um, a lot of like crazy roles. They can do crazy very well. Obviously, Cage takes a very straight man approach here, um, and I was expecting something a lot more, uh, shall we say, wild? I guess explosive. Mm. Um, and it's not to say that there weren't some bigger moments in it, um, but some of them just felt very. I don't know. Random. Um, I think I won't skip ahead too much. There's the scene at the shopping mall towards the end of the film where that mm. kind of kicked off, and I was kind of like, um, "No, this could all." And maybe it's the thirty-year-old logical brain of me trying to analyze these films, but I'm just like, "This all could have been avoided. N- none of this had to happen." Uh, but I suppose to sort of kick things off at the beginning, um, you know, we have. Willem Dafoe in sort of that pink room doing a line. And I thought at the start, he kind of was like, okay, this is kind of an interesting tone we're setting for the film mm. here. We're getting like a good idea of Dafoe's character, um, the aptly named Mad Dog, straight away. Um, for you, as we sort of kick things off, and I think to be fair, it's um, quite a wild opening that I don't know that the rest of the film really captures captures it seems to struggle knowing what its pacing is what its idea is overall which was a real shame but looking at the opening um and all the the wild nonsense that sort of kicked off there um did that sort of capture you straight away or did you did you still have a bit of a time sort of connecting with it from the get-go um it certainly held my intention in the beginning because when you get willem dafoe just in that pink house, like he's on the set of the Grand Budapest Hotel. He's, (laughs) well, he's just there raging at the phone and destroying it and then going into that very blue bathroom. And he acts this kind of almost sniveling kind of guy to his love interest and and her daughter as he knows he needs to have us place spend the night. He knows he has to essentially bow to a whim just to so he doesn't have to sleep elsewhere and then it goes so I suppose wrong for him and such viciousness occurs and it feels like it's all happening in a quirky kind of way the way it unfolds and it does get establish him quite well as this is the loose cannon and it sets the tone with his horrific acts of violence. I don't think the film captured that manic energy as well as it could have um, later on. 
Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And I think it's, again, I, d I don't know if this is just kind of um, a, a Paul Schrader just doing whatever the hell Paul Schrader wants to do kind of thing. But I thought, you know, hey, you know, this is this is kind of a, a, a big energy start. He's like, as you said, smashed the phone against the wall. He's taken the drugs. We've had those shots of him almost, uh, he can seem kind of like tripping out. He's done the heroin in the bathroom. And then suddenly he's um, trying to put, off and on, off and on again. Partner in a, in a chokehold, and he's just stabbing her wildly before he runs upstairs and shoots the preteen daughter in in the <laughs> head. Um, so I was kind of like, I mean, I, I, I exactly agree with what you said. You know, okay, this is this is like the wild card to watch out for. This is the guy who's going to make some um, crazy plays. We're going to get some. Um, he's going to be my Nick Cage conduit. In this, um, even though, as I said, Defoe very capable of madness himself. Don't get me mm. wrong. Um, but it was kind of that weird thing because, as you said, you know, Defoe goes between this sort of this incandescent rage to um, sniveling weasel on the on the drop of a hat, and he goes between that throughout the film, really. And I think it's one of these things, you know, not that you know a character shouldn't have an emotional journey or range or anything, but it's kind of like. With the film and the stylistic choices, a lot of the time I'm just kind of like, I'm not really sure what film I'm watching, or mm. um, I guess with the characters in general, um, you know, I, I think it makes it very clear that these characters aren't the most likable people. They're all ex-cons. They're all on. Mm -hmm. I think it's the California two strike, three strikes, and you're out system um, in there as well. But at no real point, I was kind of like. Is there anything about these characters that I can sort of like a little bit? Because I don't know if they were just trying to stress that if you're a criminal, you're just a piece of shit, and that's kind of the way it is. Did, did you sort of find anything with the characters that were a bit more, um, I suppose, what's the term here? Something to latch on to between Troy, Diesel, Mad Dog, or did, similar to me, you have a bit of a issue sort of finding one to sort of... Uh, run with almost no i'm quite like you i mean it felt like paul schrader was making this kind of hangout film with these three scuzzy ex-cons who are just um who just trying to essentially dig their way out of a hole they made themselves but it doesn't feel like there's i agree it doesn't feel like there's much we can latch on to because as much as you've got these interesting actors, it doesn't feel like the material matches up for them. So hmm. if you come on for, ooh, we're going to see Cage and Defoe, and then it's just like, well, okay, I'm hanging out with you guys, but can I have something to give a shit about? Because yeah. when it came, especially with Diesel, I he just felt like the, the just the third guy in there. Just... It, I think it could have been just a two-hander with Defoe and Cage, but and that's not anything on Christopher Matthew Cook's performance. I just feel like there wasn't enough material in there to really justify a third guy rather than just folding it in to make it a two-hander. Agreed and seconded again, because I think the moment it was established that there was a third and that was Diesel... Um... I think against the, you know, I guess not to sort of um, 
put up on pedestals too early in the episode or anything. But, you know, really with the heavyweights in there that are Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe, two people who can be, for better or worse, scene stealers. Um, I think it was a bit of a a risky play to have three leads because a lot of the time... Maybe this is some arrogance on my part, but I suppose because um, not having the the name recognition for Christopher Matthew Cook, there's a lot of the time I kind of felt, you know, obviously, you know, you're here and I'm not going to write you off, but I don't feel the immediate investment in you as I do with Troy and Mad Dog. And Mm -hmm. you just look at the poster, like, Diesel's not on there. He's not on the poster. You wouldn't know he was a part of the film and the marketing for this. But there was, I suppose, maybe not issues, but I think with Diesel, um, he was the one... I suppose when we're talking about characters to try and like, there was a few times in the film where I thought they were going to go down a certain route of, um, oh, maybe he's going to be our our human being of the three. Um, he's going to be the one with some kind of who wants to be better, wants to get out because he. Um, there was the lady that he met, meets at the uh, casino bar and. They go up to his room and he starts flipping out because she's asking him all these questions. And afterwards, he's like, "Ah, oh, like I'm really sorry. I've been in." prison for so long I'm still kind of adjusting to life on the outside and in stuff in pieces like that I'm like there's like this little glimmer of humanity and sort of hope almost but it's really swallowed in what is otherwise a very nihilistic um, film about just three people who are desperate for a big score and then also lost in slow motion shots of them shooting mustard at each other um <laughs> And I suppose just going into Diesel a bit more, um, obviously, you know, we're comparing him as, even though he is the third and he is sort of, he, he should really be the third main billing, he is a secondary character to sort of Troy Mad Dog. Mm. There's no real other way to sort of pull it. Um, how did you find Diesel's character throughout? Honestly, I didn't think much of him because I don't think the film gave me much to really latch onto. It's like you said, he has that moment where. He's apologising as though he wants to be better. And that could... Basically, the way they took his character and Mad Dogs, I thought they were going to invert it because Diesel... Of how much screen time Diesel got and how Mad Dogs felt like he was overshadowing him as well. But So I was surprised when they chose the route they did. And after that... After that point, it just feels like, okay, so what was the point of that? Because of where they ended up anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, even with, I guess, the motivations, I suppose it's kind of, the, the broad thing is that, I couldn't help but actually, I suppose maybe a more apt comparison, when I was watching it, I couldn't help but um, compare it to GTA Five in terms of like the three main characters, because I suppose... Your mad dog would have been your Trevor. Um, mm. And I suppose the other two kind of kind of been interchangeable with Michael and Franklin, depending on how you want to look at it. Maybe Michael, more of the Franklin. Um, or Troy as more of the Michael, I should say there. Getting all my characters mixed up. Um, but that's, that to me was, I suppose, you know, three characters who in and out of the, the criminal justice system, however you want to sort of look at it. And 
looking for that one big last score, but obviously with the video game, obviously it's longer, there's more characterization and story to flesh things out and stuff, but mm. it just felt like in this that, um, you know, there was... You get them sort of alluding to, you know, there's no real hope for people like us, and they're kind of just sullenly agreeing with themselves, and it's like, yeah, we should just do another another crime, another of the criminal things to give us a chance to get out. And um, it's like, oh, I guess. I think, as we said earlier, it just kind of turns very raising Arizona um, because they end up uh, contracted to steal the the baby of a rival mobster. Um, even with that, though, I kind of... I, kind of, I ended up getting a bit confused as to sort of who was who because they meet with... Greco the Greek, who's played by Paul Schrader, um, what we'll add in the first scene, I could not understand a word he was saying. Thank you. <laughs> I, I worried that was just the sound on my TV or something. Not a word. Did not understand what he was saying at all. Um, and I'm glad you agree. You know what didn't help? The DVD didn't have any subtitles. Outstanding. Yeah, Outstanding. so... I was just lost. I had to rewind it a couple of times. And I was like, okay, I think I've pieced it. But Paul Schrader, hey, it's your acting debut. Enunciate. <laughs> so you've been in the business long enough, uh, Schrader. I think you should know what's going on there. I suppose for the listeners, if you've not seen it, um, I guess some background. Paul Schrader approached a few people for that role, but I think due to the limitations of the budget of the film... Um, he'd gone to the likes of Michael Douglas, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, uh, Christopher Walken, Jeff Goldblum, just to name but a few. Um, didn't work out, all would have been over budget, so he just did it himself. And I think he became a little bit more comprehensible in some later scenes that he was in, but in the first one especially, it was kind of just like... I was like... It's a good thing that... <laughs> Nick Nolte was up there as well Michael Winnicott of course um, he was <laughs> Rupert Everett for Greco the Greek but so it's a good thing there was a synopsis in there otherwise I would have had no idea what was going on what a grab bag of names that was for that one role he had some ambitions for this film he had mm. some ambitions but I was looking into some um, I suppose speaking of the ambitions of Schrader um I was looking into some of his interviews that he gave here, and there was um, quite a handy one with The Guardian um, that he gave. So obviously prior to this, um, I think it's well documented, his previous endeavour with Nicolas Cage in Dying of the Light was, for lack of a better term, a complete and utter shit show. Because it just went completely... Uh, not to plan. He tried to redeem it in Dark a few years later. Um, so he basically said that although Dog Eat Dog was not an important film in his repertoire, he made this as a, and I quote, a redemption project to put right the unhappy experience of Dying of the Light with Nick at this cage. Um, and said I wanted to do something with Nick that they could show they could make a film that people wanted to see, basically. Um I suppose had uh, had you seen Dying of the Light as sort of prior to this as well? Uh, no, but your damning words kind of make me want to watch it even more. <laughs> I suppose it's um, the the epitome of studio intervention. Um, ah. 
so you could probably get an idea of what was going on. I think it was one of the f- maybe one of two films that Nicolas Cage has disowned as well. I think pretty much everyone involved disowned Dying of the Light because of a studio intervention. What was um, the other film Cage disowned? I think it was two one one. Oh, I know the one you mean. Oh. Which, which I've not come to yet, but I think I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I believe these are the only two, as of this record at least, that he has um, publicly disowned. I can think of a couple he could disown. I mean, just say Left Behind, man. Just say Left, left Behind. <laughs> um, like you said in his episode, that episode, he did it because of his Christian brother, didn't he? He's a family man and he's a good man. Um, so, so, you know, he can't be said that he doesn't take him for the team. Our cage. Um, play. So, and yeah. for and to pay off his taxes. And also taxes. The ever-present uh, <laughs> specter, the cold bony hand of the tax reaper on his shoulder. Dinosaur skulls cost money. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? <laughs> no, what a shock. Because uh, I kind of want a dinosaur skull. I mean, I'm not a man of particular wealth uh, in any stretch of the imagination, but hey, listeners, Christmas is coming up. If you want to chip in and get a dino skull for your boy. <laughs> or if or, anybody wants to take part in National Treasure Free and steal a dino skull. Oh, could you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine? I mean, whether or not we get National Treasure 3 at this point, I know we're getting the TV series. I hope Nicolas Cage will at least make a cameo. He owes us that much after 15 years. Um, I says, do you think we'll ever get a National Treasure 3 at this point? Because I know it's action-adventure, Cage, not a spring chicken, with respect to the Golden Hog, even though he's eternal and will never die. But in human terms, to make it relatable to the listeners, um, do you think there's a chance? Um, I seem to remember Cage saying he was all but done with studio projects, taking on these more interesting ones like Pig and Mandy and that. So um, if Disney wanted to press ahead with National Treasure Free, I could see Cage turning it down, honestly. Hell, that's probably why they're going for the legacy TV show rather than just an actual sequel with him and um, his co-stars and that. Yeah, maybe if it's the case that we have to end up, you know, crowdfunding an independent spiritual successor called not National Treasure, but say Regional Collectible, <laughs> um, starring Nicolas Cage. Um, then you know, I'll I'll spearhead that movement. I've got no problem with that. Um, but you know, I think this thing is what well, I'm hopeful he'll make at least a cameo in the National Treasure TV series. Um, could happen. It could happen. Crazier things have happened. Crazier things have happened. I mean, he, once upon a time, he never really touched TV projects, and he's done, you know, history of swear words. He's got uh, Joe Exotic. Apparently, that's not happening anymore. That's been knocked oh, on that the head. Oh, that got cancelled. Oh, okay. It's the. Um, oh, there was another one with another oh, company that, that was further oh. along. I know the one you mean. I can't. I think Kate McKinnon was being Carol Baskin in that one. That's the, that's the the name I was thinking of. I think that production mm. was further along, um, uh, okay. so they've just decided to pull the plug on the the Cage one. But it will go down as one of Hollywood's greatest what ifs for a um 
eventual BuzzFeed article five mm. years from now. <laughs> I think it's quite a testament to this film that we spent so much time talking about National Treasure 3 instead of the film recovery. <laughs> to be honest, like I didn't hate the film. and Obviously, there's still a lot more to cover, but mm. one of, I don't know about you, um, but and I say this and I put this fully on the table that like my memory's not great uh-huh. anyway. About five minutes after the credits rolled on this film, I was like, can't remember a thing that happened. <laughs> can't remember a thing that happened. So it's, I, I, I make my notes and search for reference when we go into the episodes. But mm. I found, you know, a lot of sort of set piecey moments, um, if you will, but a lot of forgettable stuff in this as well. One thing I did notice, and I think this is me going back to, you know, I, I don't claim to be the biggest. I think one I don't I've never will never claim to be the biggest film buff in the world. I'm just a man who unironically mm. believes Nicolas Cage is the greatest actor of all time. Is that Bad mental play. illness? That's to be discussed on the autopsy after I'm dead. Um I also just um you know, just you know, like the bits that I like and notice the bits that I know. But there was a bit at the start as well. Um again, sort of talking about Schrader, where they had that scene in the strip club and it was just in black and white. Mm. Um, and this is one of those issues with sort of the, I guess the style over substance for me and then I sort of wondered to myself oh this is in black and white I wonder if the rest of the film is in black and white or if this is like a flashback kind of thing and neither neither um, I looked into this and apparently um, he just did that on purpose to make people think oh I wonder if this is going to be in black and white he just did it to fuck with you Okay, I was wondering if it was something to do with um, they kept mentioning Troy having this focus on Humphrey Bogart being like, oh yeah, people say I sound like him and say I look like him. Maybe that was meant to be a Casablanca type thing, despite the fact his impression sounds like a generic 30s gangster who's going to go like, say, at the end of it. But <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe I'm just bullshitting for the sake of bullshitting. It's very welcomed on this podcast. I never, never apologise for BS over here. <laughs> but to be fair, though, maybe that's a better take than just, you know, if we discount Paul Schrader's like, oh, whatever, fuck you attitude, <laughs> apparently to filmmaking. Um, mm. Maybe it is because that's, um, I suppose, something worth looking at as well. This very, I don't know if, if even odds the right word, this weird through line um, that Nicolas Cage added wasn't in sort of the original source material. Uh, this was based on a book in '95 of the same name. Um, mm. But Nicolas Cage, as is his want in movies sometimes, just to add shit into it uh, because he's Nicolas Cage, you let him do what he wants. Um, he just added the characterization of um, his character loved Humphrey Bogart. He was apparently asked about this. Because apparently on the DVD there's a Beyond Fest Q&A feature or something. Um, and someone asked him why at the end of the film was like, why are you speaking like Humphrey Bogart? And he said, um, I want that to be your own personal secret. What does that mean? What? what? That is as much as an answer as we will ever have as to why he did that. Uh, what does it mean? Sounds like a wanky way to say, come up with your own interpretations. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Mm. Um, 
I know I know he's big on letting the role performance speak for itself, and um, I don't think he's a man who likes to dissect uh, the cinema verite, if you will, too much after a film's all said and done. You know, flash forward to the end of the film, everything's gone to shit. He's got um, an elderly couple at gunpoint, uh, and he's like, uh, you're going to drive the car, we're going to get out of here, see, no one has to die. Um, <laughs> and then it's just a weird shootout. Um, and then it's it's a weird note to end the film on. Again, I, I realise we're kind of jumping all over the, the place here, but um, did, you, did you find any, um, I don't know, any layers that worked for you in Troy's character with the the whole Humphrey Bogart thing? Humphrey Bogart thing? No. But uh, there was this thing rattling around in my mind about the ending where he last before he kidnaps the old couple, we see him getting dragged on the police car, like handcuffed to the outside. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, I was wondering if it was more like a death dream, like he gets out in here as he's dying there being dragged by the police car he's dreaming that he gets out he's saying like okay you guys take me away from here because that's the only way he can conceive that he get out and maybe he'd be like oh don't worry i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hurt you because yeah, you even get the old guy driving saying something like you know who you look like as though it's a reference back to his own te- take on that story but because of the actions he's done and how life has turned out for him it ends with these people who said oh yeah you're gonna be fine the the people who when the shootout was about to begin he moved away from the car they still die because of him he dies so i was just wondering if it was all a death dream and he didn't escape from that car yeah, I mean, when he when he sort of appeared um, just out of nowhere, and his clothes were slightly torn, but he was he looked a lot better than you probably should have, considering that cops mm. are dragging you on the back of a cop car because a cop has just died because of you. Um, and obviously, the, the the lights right at the end as well. It's red and it's blue and purple. It's all this haze of. Um, I don't know, like this, 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 that dreamlike sort of tinkling music as well. So, mm. I mean, that might add credence to your theory, actually, that maybe it is some kind of dream. Um, you know, not for all the the stylistic choices that Paul Schrader makes that you will ever know. You'll ever be none the wiser of what is going on. Yeah. Um, in sort of any of this, so <laughs> I suppose um, the the ending, just like Cage said, they just want that to be our own personal secret. Um, because so, maybe they want it to be a secret because they don't want us to talk about it because they know it doesn't make sense exposing the business one film at a time um, and that's that's what we do here on the Cage Rage podcast um, Expositions There was one thing which um, I think there is there was potential here because Mark Kermode in his recent review of The Card Counter the latest Paul Schrader film mentioned how Schrader touches on familiar themes of lonely men who face damnation. And I think there's hints of that here, where you have these ex-cons, they're just out of prison, they're each other's only family at this point. They feel left behind by a world that's moved on. Uh, 
especially when they have that very old man shouting at the clouds saying, oh, what's Facebook? I've never heard of Taylor Swift. And it's almost <laughs> yeah. like they can only see one way to make a living out of prison. And it just further digs that hole for them. I do wonder if that part was autobiog- autobiographical because it's based on a novel by convicted felon Edward Bunker. And through that, I think they could have made an interesting comedy ever errors where these ex-cons feel we have no other way to earn than to commit more crimes, even though that's what's got us into this mess in the first place. And through that, they just screw up even more. But it just feels too aimless and senseless to work. And it's a shame because I think they could have had something interesting there. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm of the same mind as well. There's definitely, you know, like I said, like likable portions of the film. And I think going into this film, um, and especially with first viewings, I do try to keep an open mind outside of mm. little synopses that I read for notes and stuff just ahead of recording. Um, but I try to go with an open mind. But this one was like, I like Nicolas Cage. I like Willem Dafoe. It looks like it's going to be, you know, a lot more of the sort of the black comedy element there. I think there's going to be something, you know, maybe not brilliant, but good, enjoyable. But um, I think I just came out of it just being very a bit just like, uh, it confused. It's kind of like one of these mm-hmm. films that, um, you know, even though Paul Schrader was on, as he says, a redemption mission for this one, it, um, this felt like maybe something in the Coen Brothers territory that if they'd sort of had this, you would have had, you know, the same film in different hands. I think we would have had a, a, a different but better film. Mm. Um, suppose, you know, was Schrader the person to tackle this? Was he still bitter and jaded by the sort of the Hollywood machine at this point? I suspect the answer is yes. Um, but I wanted to like this a lot more than I did. Um I think even even with Mad Dog as well, I think between him being just a murderer, um, just like a reprehensible, cold-blooded mm. killer, and just this sniveling thing, I just felt there was no real, I guess, middle ground in his character to sort of find something with. It's either like, oh, you're just kind of a weasel, or you're just a horrible, <laughs> a horrible person. When we get, you know, we're getting towards the end of this kind of um, after the baby heist, and we'll sort of, I guess we'll sort of touch on that in a, in a little moment as well. But mm. he's having this heart to heart in the car with Diesel, and he's like, "Oh man, you know, like I, I, I do want to change. I believe that I can change." And and then Diesel's kind of just like the straight matter of fact voice of reason is like, "Okay, look, if you do and you mean it, and you've been there for me, so I do owe you one, then I will help you." Um, and he takes them uh, because they're hiding that body. They're taken back to the Mad Dog stash, uh, the Boneyard, if you will. Um, mm. And when we got to this bit here where, you know, they're trying to just throw this body on the pile, the body pile falls through, and then the sort of culmination of that, which I don't know if this was telegraphed, maybe I missed something here, but it seemed to come out of quite left field for me when Diesel just executed Mad Dog. Um, when that sort of happened, um, what was your sort of reaction to that? How did you feel about uh, Mad Dog's end in this one? At, once that happened, I was like, wait, what the fuck? And then I rewound just to make sure I wasn't 
I didn't miss something which I which I neglected to pay attention to. But the, you're right, the way it plays out, it's almost like he's just like, right, I'm fed up, I'm just going to kill you here. And it it doesn't feel like... it. You're right, it just comes out of nowhere and it just feels like Paul Schrader knew what he wanted to do at the end, but he wasn't sure the journey to get there. So it just felt more out of frustration that he just blindly executes him. But this is what I mean by it feels like their journeys got mixed up. That feels more like a mad dog thing to do, where he's just like, right, I'm fed up with this, and executes him. It doesn't fit from what we've seen a Diesel to actually do this. But then why am I giving a shit, in all honesty? (laughs) And it's a fair response. I, I kind of had like a similar thought process myself when it happened you know, he's basically just uppercutted with that gun, shot through the chin, through the base of the mm. s- top of the skull, and it caught me off guard. I, I, and I won't necessarily like, like it shocked me. I was like, oh, what? I was like, oh. Oh, well, I I wasn't expecting it. Like, now, at least. Um, I think it kind of felt like there was a scene or something missing that really would have built up more that to have an impact. And you know, sort of cast my mind back to sort of GTA Five here, and you know, spoilers if you haven't played it already. It's been it's been years. There's been a thousand editions out. Play GTA Five. Um, we sort of get to the end of GTA Five, and I think it's as Franklin. You're presented with the, the whole option ABC scenario, um, and it's, there is an option where you can go and sort of kill um, Trevor, and it kind of felt like that, but without any of the the drama or the build-up, like you're just killing, oh, well, he's the crazy guy, he's going to cost us, like, the big score. So it kind of felt like they were just taking him out for the sake of taking him out, but I feel like if there'd been more of a conversational process with Diesel, that was like, oh, man, like, Mad Dog, he's he's, he's too much for wild cards, you know, we can't trust him. Um, If anyone's going to give us away, it's him. If there'd been some, any rationale leading up to it, then you might be like, oh, I can understand why Diesel sort of did this. Um, but you, you don't get that understanding. It's like Diesel just like, yeah, I'm good. I'm just going to, I'm just going to kill you. So it's kind of like, even though in a way, I guess I kind of expected that Mad Dog was not going to live through it. It's kind of, it's not like this, I suppose. Um, did you have any kind mm. of idea for, I don't know, broadly speaking here, um, <laughs> a, a different scenario that didn't end with Mad Dog being shot in the heads or when things just started breaking down, it kind of felt like they were breaking down so quickly and randomly almost. See, the route I expected was more um, Diesel dies, probably at Mad Dog's hand, and then it's more Mad Dog, this guy who has been unblindingly loyal to Troy, throughout it just comes to a head with that loyalty and it results in their fates being sealed and probably troy having to kill mad dog and i thought that would have something like that probably would have built on the relationship but it's just very odd how after mad dogs executed diesel just gives the generic oh yeah mad dog's not coming back 
and Troy just seems like, well, okay. And despite that mustard and ketchup fight, which is essentially the saddening image of, oh, our family will never be fixed together again. It's broken beyond repair. But after that, it's just uh, like, okay, what next? Let's go to the supermarket, get some food. And just so flippant, I don't get it. Yeah, I think flippant is the um, the best term to describe it. And as you said, it's just kind of, it's Mad Dog being shot, and then it's kind of the voiceover of Diesel telling Troy, like, oh, yeah, Mad Dog didn't make it, with the, the slow-mo montage of the trio having a little um, sauce squirt party in the hotel room. Um, I guess to uh, synergy, the imagery rather of a, um, a Wild West shootout almost, which I suppose is what we get in sort of the scene following as well. I suppose sort of continuing on this three, this theme of things that didn't really, <laughs> really make sense for me. So obviously the next thing is they're at the um, the supermarket more or less after this and. Troy saying to Greco the Greek, um, it's like, oh, he turns out in the um, the initial heist, they killed the wrong guy who might actually have been the right guy. I was very confused as to who it was they actually killed. I don't know if that was... Uh, I think it was explained, uh, but it seemed to be quite quickly explained. I Yeah, they didn't do a good job explaining it. I think it was meant to be insinuated that the person they were trying to ransom money off by kidnapping the baby was the person who got who Mad Dog blew their head off initially before they even kidnapped the baby. So it's just a case of, well, this job's just ruined. We fucked it up, right? Now there's no money. It, it was very confusing because, mm. you know, they, they go into that, um, that that big mansion almost. Um, there's someone already waiting there with a gun who's fallen asleep. There's a babysitter upstairs with the baby. So they go, all three of them go into the, uh, the baby room Um the guy turns up and is like, oh, you guys are fucked up. But then he gets a shotgun to the head straight off. But then they check the ID and it says it was Jose Vasquez, if I'm not getting the name incorrect. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out that person wasn't Jose, but it was someone else called, I don't know. Robert I wonder if that was a fake ID situation. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if it, it was That's a fake it. ID, but like you said, they don't. I was really confused about who actually got killed and where mm. where they actually were in terms of the of the baby napping here. Because um, as you said, they didn't really do a great job of explaining it. Even though the, the pl- planet itself is sort of mapped out. Um, they're like, I'll give you... Uh, the guy who Greco sets up the meet with is like, I'll give you $750,000 to steal this baby. I think one of the funny lines is like, you're still a one-year-old baby because they won't remember it. A four-year-old, that's <laughs> going to scar him for life. I was like, good line. I'll, I'll have that. I'll have that. Um, I suppose the heist itself, um, and I guess this confusion we're alluding to, did, did it in large part make sense for you? Um, did the heist sort of work for you? I know it's not really concluded by the end because of all the fates of the characters, but um, where did that sort of uh, sort of go for you? It just felt like they had probably 40 minutes of plot to stretch out to a 90-minute film. And, yeah, it felt so so messy in the way it was conveyed. 
and it it the plot the baby napping especially it just kind of ends like once they once they realize oh shit we shot the wrong guy it's almost like did they actually release the baby and the woman or are they still where they said they were i presume they were let go otherwise it's just very well that's a very dark way to end things but they don't really give you a conclusion and and even if they do did let um go they didn't wear any masks or anything they could easily be identified so these idiots have even if they weren't in a shootout of their own making they're just really <laughs> they really muck things up <laughs> Yeah, a lot of stuff they've not thought through considering they're all basically career criminals um, mm. and it's not their first time inside. So I guess there is that um, lingering question of if the babysitter is still in that room to that day. They sort of said to us, like, oh, we've got guys outside. Don't you dare try and leave. We'll give you the combination to the lock in an hour. Did she ever get that lock combination and let herself out after being kidnapped as well? Mm. We don't know. Where did the baby end up? We don't know. Who was it that got shot in the head and it exploded? We don't really know. Um, the other thing that I'm not sure of is, and something I've sort of been, I guess, skirting around up until now, uh, the shopping mall, superstore, whatever you want to call it, scene as well, where now it's just Troy and Diesel. Um, Diesel's gone in to get some supplies. Troy is telling Greco the Greek about the situation. Um, and what's going down um, now sort of Diesel's been uh, I guess eyed by the security guard in the mall because he's in he's got a gun and he's like oh I should, I should go and call this in and then the cops kind of like well this is America this is what people do they carry weapons this is mm. this is fine it's like has he done anything it's like no but he's dirty it's like right that's it I'm coming in to <laughs> I'm coming in to get a, a look on this one. And they do that thing and like security follows him around and the police have like eyed him up, but he pays for his groceries and he makes it out with the bag. Um so really this is all Troy Nicholas Cage's fault because he gets um there's another opposite that goes to him uh and's like, Oh, you know, we need to see license and papers work and ID and all of this and all the things they ask for in America. Um and then he's like, Oh, we've had a report that your car's I don't know, weed, weed, your car is weed, there's some weed in your car. It's like, oh, all right. Um and then he for lack of a better term, just mortal combats her into the police car. Um and then it all <laughs> It all kicks off, which is, you know, a whole scenario that could have been avoided. Now, I suppose for Troy, he does mention earlier in the film that I think one of the reasons he went to jail before is that because a cop planted drugs on him. So would, oh, that, yeah. would that cop have planted drugs in him again? I suppose thinking about it now, I didn't think about this at the time. Maybe is that why he freaked out and started attacking her? But there's mm. also part of me thinking if he just let them do the search, they would have got away, maybe. Uh, before it all descends into it, anarchy and chaos. Um, this scene as well, um, the, where it's suddenly, maybe like the most high-octane scene of the film, um, did this work for you? Did you find this a bit jarring? Where did you sort of stand on the um, supermarket shootout? 
it felt like it came out of nowhere because I mean, yeah, he's yeah, essentially the guy is essentially D- Diesel is for lack of a better term, discriminated against because of the clothes he's wearing and, yeah, he's carrying a weapon, but I I don't know much about concealed weapon laws in America, but but essentially this all comes about because of that, and as far as I know, there was nothing illegal in that car that um, Troy's in, and, yeah, essentially he overact probably you're right because of his remembering of how how he was sent away for a long time because of drugs were planted on him but no it just seemed to want to escalate out of nowhere to the point diesel stole the cop car and just suddenly rammed it into a pole because what was it because because he was having like heart attack or something this is what I wanted to ask you about. So obviously, um, Diesel sort of shot and killed the cop that Cage had already attacked. He's run off. A sheriff van turns up. He kneecaps that cop, Diesel does. Mm. Um, suddenly a high-speed chase starts. And then suddenly, in something which I'm pretty sure was not explained or established at any other point in the film... Um, he starts having a heart attack or heart palpitations or he just gets adrenaline because the film is now suddenly crank. Um, (laughs) And then he gets sweaty and he crashes into a pole and his fate is left undetermined. Um, So the whole thing was just... I don't know, like from Nicolas Cage's weird slow motion side of the fist punch to that cop in the face to the whole... Um, shoot out and then the car chase the film here takes a very energetic and I don't know unnecessary turn and this is kind of (laughs) I don't know I guess the vibe of the film for me is like a lot of things happen out of the blue Mm. a lot of things that aren't either aren't explained or are poorly explained suddenly happen and then you're just like oh and here comes Paul Schrader with a star swipe into the next scene of the film because he loves doing jaunty little things like the cheeky LV is. Um, but things just keep happening. And I don't... And by the end of the film, as we were saying now, Troy's now full Bogart. Um, and he's not dead from the car dragging, but he's been shot now and he's dragged off again. Uh, or he's put into the back of the car and it's driven off. A lot of things just happened. Mm. And he kind of expected to just take it, which was kind of my ultimate, I guess, takeaway of the film. It's just like, just accept it. It's happening. And then 90 minutes later, and I will say it again, God bless a 90-minute film. Gotta love them. Um, but it sort of comes to an end, and then he's like, oh, the voiceover, I just wanted what I wanted, and the rest is verbiage. And I was kind of just like, what? Yeah, yeah, this is what I mean by 40 minutes of story in a 90-minute film. It felt like they had an idea of Troy dying at the hands of the police, um, whichever interpretation you take. And then they just, on top of the voiceover, which felt intrusive in this film, 
that ending thing that ending voiceover what they say just feels like oh we need to wrap up something leave a, some kind of message even if it's nihilistic or whatever and they're just like i don't know fuck it improvise something it just feels like a lack of ideas which they're trying to stretch out into more than it actually is i think i'd be in agreement with that as well um you know and i'm even though with stuff that's that is adaptations you know i'm not someone who says like well you should be reading the book first to get the most out of <laughs> the movie you know a movie should stand on its own merits regardless of not of whether it's adapted or otherwise but exactly. um i just wasn't Again, like I'm still confused. Like I watched this a few days ago at the point of recording, and I've been thinking about it since. And it's one of those like, oh, now I'm remembering this scene, and maybe this was different. Maybe this was better to what I thought it was. In amongst all the other things that I forgot, because a lot of it was just, as you said, a lot of it was padding. Just them celebrating their first score at the first drug house. Mm. Um, but then I think just a lot of it. Is it's confusing and forgettable, and there are people out there that love it. I sort of looked at the um, like, yeah, the good old letterbox reviews as well. A lot of people mm -hmm. really sort of love the darkness in this, and they love the way that Cage and Defoe sort of played their characters. And I sort of wondered, you know, what if what if Cage had been Mad Dog? I sort of um, originally was intended. Would that have changed anything? I don't. I don't know. Um, Cage turned it down because he wanted to do Troy instead. I think he'd just done the trust before this, but he sort of cited the reason um, that he'd already played a crazy guy in his previous role, to which the non-Cage lovers would go like, oh, what role? Um, <laughs> but I think one of the other things I'd read about this as well was um, small budget, most of... It was, uh, I think, going towards paying Cage, a slight payment disparity with Cage and Defoe, as the budget wouldn't cover them both. Cage's pay was a bit higher. Um, Schrader said in the Guardian article, this hurt Defoe's ego a little bit. Um, exact quote was, the good thing about working with Nick is that he gets your film financed. The bad thing is that he eats your budget alive. So he, he asked Nicolas Cage to give Willem Defoe $100,000 out of his own payment to which Defoe accepted. Um, so maybe so maybe that's the real heist of the movie. Um, right there is, you know, Defoe throwing his little toy out of the pram. But I don't know. It's, it's one of these things, though. It's, it's kind of like part of me maybe wants to go and try it again, but part of me is like, what, will a second viewing of this change anything? Do you think, a, would a repeat viewing maybe change things for you or do you think it was the risk you'd still come out feeling how you do now a bit like a bit confused a bit uh i'm not sure what's <laughs> what's really happened um i think reading other people's interpretations behind the scenes material um theories um ecstatic reviews all this stuff can alter one's perception of the film and can make it so that a further viewing will really change it in your eyes. And you might find yourself with a new favourite, which you could not have envisioned before. I mean, one of the most recent films to get such reappraisal was Jennifer's Body, and rightly so. I don't know if I see Dog Eat Dog having the same effect, in all honesty. I 
I watched it last night. I gave it my time. And what I've read of reviews and people's interpretations, I just, I don't really see anything which makes me want to go and try it again, which makes me want to devote my time again to this film, which honestly, by the end of it, I was just like, oh yeah, there was that scene with the um, safe house heist in the beginning. I completely forgot about something which set up 90% of the film, in all honesty. I, <laughs> yeah. I just don't... No, I don't see myself revisiting this, in all honesty. Again, I think we're in agreement in pretty much all of this. It's <laughs> one, I think, like I said earlier, as soon as the film stopped, I was like, at that point, if I'd not taken notes, I could not have recalled a single thing that happened in this film. Um, actually, I suppose with the exception of the one Cajun line that we get, um, he says, I'll get us such a good gig, it'll take your tits off. Um, so, you know, those. the fact that I almost forgot that one as well speaks volumes. Um, and actually another note, it's a very minor thing. You mentioned having the, um, uh, the DVD um, earlier. Uh, the one sort of trivia about awards is that the film was nominated by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films of the USA in 2017 for Best DVD Blu-ray Release, but lost out to Tales of Halloween. Um, so maybe it was a, a light running at the Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films Awards that year, but um, for a film with no subtitles, it was doing something right for someone. 2016? Had uh, they not seen Arrival? Or 17, sorry, I should say, if I said 16 there. Oh, was the... I think the award was, itself was 2017, I should say. But um, were, this film was 2016, wasn't it? So I guess there's some kind of DVD window that they look at there. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, really? I, I barely call this horror science fiction or any of that. In complete agreement, because I saw that and I was like doesn't seem like this is the right film for that um, category, but maybe it was just a light year for the DVD industry. Um, See, um, this is bringing to mind when the Golden Globes nominated The Martian for Best Musical or Comedy, despite the fact it was, wasn't a musical or a comedy. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is a similar thing here. I mean... Mm. I don't know. I think maybe they sort of, I guess, specialise in sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. But um, they they give out the Saturn Awards because I think they do the, the gamut of the genres and all the bits oh, in right. between as well. Um, just scanning through, they've got your best film actors, your best TV actors. They awarded uh, Ryan Reynolds best actor for Deadpool that year. Um, but I suppose it's in a sort of sci-fi-ish category of actors um i mean yeah i can see with ryan reynolds his character was literally regenerating himself where's that in dog eat dog no no regeneration there um no heads are coming back and a few of them are shot off mm -hmm. um the other contenders for dvd blu-ray release was um outside of tales halloween and dog eat dog for this particular awards the man who knew infinity the lobster uh, the Wailing. They also had a special edition release 
category as well, as well as uh, collection and uh, television release. So, you know, they're putting the effort in to give DVDs and Blu-rays their, uh, their just desserts there. Yeah, I wonder if that's more a general awards than actually focusing on sci-fi and horror, because I'm pretty sure The Man Who Knew Infinity is not any of that either. And not even in a, but maybe if you squint at it kind of thing, because I think that's just Dev Patel is a genius mathematician. I mean, I suppose if we just say they're all genius mathematicians in this film, it makes as much sense as anything else I've watched in in those 90, 95 minutes. Well, there um, you have it. Albert Einstein is our sci-fi hero of the month. Old Albie Einstein, or as we say on the podcast, Nicolas Cage. Um, this is the great <laughs> cage washing, everyone. It commences, it commences right now. Um, Next award season, Nicolas Cage as Albert Einstein. I am telling e you. equals M squeeze squared, motherfucker. <laughs> e equals MC motherfucking squared. Um, <laughs> you know what? A much better film idea right there, James. Nicolas Cage as Albert Einstein. Book it, Hollywood. We'll take our just <laughs> rewards. We'll take our intellectual property cuts if you if you feel like it. Um, so Rotten Tomatoes gives us 49%, pretty much straight down the middle for mm. review aggregates. Again, as ever, if you sort of appreciate that kind of thing. And depending on where you look, even though with a limited release, the film is said to have made somewhere between seventy and two hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Um depending on what source you look at. So not greatly seen. As I said earlier, I had no idea it came out in the UK if at all. Probably a very, very limited release um, at most. But um, it was also said it was shot in 25 days by mostly uh, recent film school graduates as well. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I think, uh, you know, Paul Trey just going, and then we'll add some, add some bloody blue smoke on the thing. And then, yeah, I think he was talking like Bogart, um, <laughs> which is, Paul Schrader was having a Humphrey Bogart fever dream, which is the no, only No, 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 we saw him in the film. He was like... <laughs> he was, if Radio Static had a voice, that would be a... <laughs> Paul, Paul Schrader on that. Um, so I think on that Schrader shrapnel bombshell, uh, as we sort of look to come towards the end of the episode, um, James Rodriguez, uh, thank you again for coming on the journey to True Cajun Varna with me. I suppose in closing, your final thoughts on Dog Eat Dog. Thanks for having me. Um, a missed opportunity, which could have could have been a decent short film, in all honesty. But even at 90 minutes, it feels not too much too much running time for such a small bit of story. Um, let's put this dog down. Bullets in the chamber, my friend. Bullets in the chamber. I'm taking all the yellow <laughs> out back. Um, <laughs> uh, with that said as well, as we say our tearful goodbyes to a once loyal family hound, um, where can we find you on uh, on the internet and those social medias? Um, if you want to follow me, I'm on Letterboxd and Twitter at RoddersJ04, two Ds. And I write reviews 
and post articles and any podcast appearances I do at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. So check it out if you're not sick of me by now. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you very, very much once again. All the links in the description below, wherever it is you're consuming this very podcast. Uh, but with that said, we come to the end of Dog Eat Dog. Um, go get yourself a cat is our review on this one. Um, so with that said, we wrap up this week's interview. Interview? Oh God, I don't even know where I'm. It might as well have been an interview. It's been more interesting, our conversation, than this film, I think. Um, I think I need putting down. I need putting down after watching this film. No episode next week because I'll have a bullet in my face. Um, That's what happens when you make a mess on the carpet. I'm sorry. I don't know. And I looked you in the eyes as I did it. I had no regrets and I doubled down. Um, So thank you for listening. If you have been, we will see you in the next one. But until then, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Take care and goodbye. Goodbye.